You're listening to The Sweeper, the pan-European football podcast that brings you all the news from the 55 UEFA nations and sometimes a little bit beyond. On this episode, we talk about our 26,000 kilometre round trip to watch the first ever Micronesian futsal tournament, KI Klaxvik's Champions League exploits and the illegal incorporation of two Crimean clubs into the Russian football pyramid. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Sweeper. My name is Lee Wingate and I'm co-hosting this episode from my holiday on the Dalmatian coast in Croatia. Such is our dedication to the regular fortnightly rhythm on this pod. But I think it's fair to say that dedication pales in comparison to that of my co-host Paul Watson, who's recently returned from his round-the-world trip to watch Micronesia's first ever futsal tournament. And we're going to be talking about it on today's episode. Paul, we've been looking forward to making this pod for months. Where is the appropriate starting point to recap this incredible journey for you and Micronesian sport? Well, it depends. I, I always realise quite a lot of people probably have no idea what my link to Micronesia is at all. So it's often good to start at that point, which feels like a long time ago now, because it is. It was 2009, first drew me to Micronesia. And so, yeah, for anyone who doesn't know why I'm involved in Micronesian football, which is a very fair question. It all started in 2009 and me and my flatmate at the time, Matt Conrad, trying to live out that childhood dream of getting an international cap, deciding that we weren't going to play for England. Because even though, in fairness, England were at pretty low ebb at that time, I still wasn't getting the call up, I don't think. And having that conversation you have in the pub a million times of like, you know, could I play for San Marino? Could I play for Andorra? Taking it to its logical conclusion and going right to the bottom of the FIFA rankings and saying, could I play for Montserrat? Could I play for Bhutan? At the time, that they were the two at the bottom. Again, realising no, almost certainly not. At that time, I think Rule Fox was still playing for Montserrat and I think he would have run <laughs> rings around me in his sleep. So <laughs> then, instead of giving up, finding that there's another list of teams that were non-FIFA recognised teams, which I'd, I'd never realised was, a, was a, a thing that existed. And at the bottom of those rankings, finding this island, Pompeii, in Micronesia that was listed on Wikipedia as the world's worst team because they'd never won any game of any type. So this whole link to Micronesia started with this crazy idea that we'd play for them. As it was, we actually emailed a, an address for Pompeii Football and got a reply from a guy called Charles Musana, who'd just moved to London, of the biggest coincidence in the world, just moved to London, but had spent 15 years in, in Pompeii trying to grow the sport and said, look, guys, you know, you're not actually going to naturalise and play for a tiny Micronesian island, not least because it's actually very hard to get citizenship. It's almost impossible, in fact. You have to renounce your current citizenship. You have to move there and be resident for five years. You have to marry a local and you have to learn the local language. A few of those I could get past my girlfriend, who is now my wife, but <laughs> there were certainly some sticking points. So actually, by the time we left for Pompeii, it was with the mission to coach and to restart football on this island where people have become quite discouraged and given up on it a bit after a huge defeat to Guam. Their, their neighbouring island. They lost 16-1. They lost all their funding. People are just sort of slightly given up on football. So that was why in 2009, I ended up on this, this very small Micronesian island and spent two years there effectively rebuilding football structures and building a team that would go in search of revenge in Guam, uh, which was how it culminated in 2010. Basically, why I, I'm still involved now is because that mission kind of ended with 
what would be the obvious, the, the next development point for, for football in the region is getting Pompeii, which is one of the four states of Micronesia. So it have to be the federated states of Micronesia is the nation. So it would have to be Pompeii and it's, it's three other islands that make up Micronesia, which are Yap, uh, Chuk and Koshrai, getting them into some sort of FIFA confederation, OFC, Oceania Football or Asia Football would be the, the two that you could apply to. That was always the mission. And in 2010, that did not happen. There was there was no progress. So that unfinished business is what effectively has led me back there. The fact that the islands have been in this perpetual state of continuing to play, but getting no assistance. And this is our new strategy was to hold a futsal competition, to re-engage the islands, to set up a new FA and to start fresh, basically. If we were to fast forward a decade, the more recent starting point, I think, is this DM you got on Twitter from a guy called Kenny, which begins Coach Watson, which I, I really like. Yeah, he called me coach for ages. <laughs> I told him, I, don't call me, I'm not, I'm not a coach anymore. It's a very American thing. So yeah, Kenny, Kenny, I'll doubt it. He sent me a message on, on Twitter and I get quite a lot of messages going to my like message requests folder and they can sit for months because you just don't think to trawl them. And just by chance, I happen to like check it the day he'd sent it, saw this message and immediately could see, wait a minute, this is a kid talking about Micronesian football. He was at the time 17, had realised that his grandfather on his mother's side was Koshrayan. So he had Koshrayan heritage. So that's one of the islands of Micronesia. Very keen college uh, football player. And understandably, I thought, well, I want to play, you know, to, I want to represent my grandfather's island. Like it's a big part of his identity. So look, I want to be a player for Micronesia. How do I do that? And it started emailing people that he could see you know fsm micronesian fa addresses and things and just getting no replies at all and so it obviously tracked me down probably through you know just google searching micronesian football and one of the people would pop up and sent me this message saying you know how do, how do i do it how do i play for the under 17s and then we had to have this kind of conversation where i said well there isn't really an opportunity for that because of this non-fifa recognition situation but what i'll do is introduce you to all the football people i know on all the islands and see look is there an FA still? What's the situation? And it was through that that we got really keen footballers from the four islands all talking. Even Koshrai, there's actually a Solomon Islander who had moved there. He lived on Pompeii for a while. A very keen footballer who was trying to start football in Koshrai for the first time, really. So all the islands had a representative and we'd have these calls and say, look, you know, what can we do? How do we get football moving? And everyone said the same thing. We need, we need a tournament. There's no focal point for players. So no one really wants to to play uh, all the other sports have it we don't have it anymore there used to be the micro games is like a little regional olympics it would have a football competition it had one in 2014 and 2018 pompey won both of those beating yap in the final so it really got the islands got moving that was supposed to happen in 2022 in the marshall islands it got delayed but the marshall islands won't have football in it when it does happen which will be next year now 2024 there won't be any football in it so they've lost any focal point so that was our our starting point of conversations was like you know what can we do to get people excited and we we came up with this idea of a futsal competition and that was for two main reasons the weather in the region is one of the wettest places in the world so anyone who ever saw my photos of coaching in Pompeii outside the pitch would flood all the time there was just almost like ankle deep water all the time we were playing and it just means you have to cancel football a lot of the time. So kids stop believing it's going to happen because it's always being cancelled. And the other thing is we were looking at a competition. We we're saying, well, we've got no funding. So the chances of funding a 16-person squad are 
very, very slim, especially because flight prices are huge in the region. So we said, well, look, what if we cut it to futsal? And that has the double benefit of saying, well, look, squads can be much smaller. You know, you don't need as many people on the court. So the two things together pushed us towards futsal. And that was where we, we started off. We said, look, could we get four islands to have their first ever futsal competition? So the tournament actually took place between the 8th and 15th of July this year, and you flew the, the very short 13,000 kilometer distance each way to get there. We talked a little bit about that on the last episode because you had four different flights all part of this long connecting journey. What happened to your bags? Yeah, the inevitable happened. They got lost. So the bags got lost, and it was basically because Korean Airlines, uh, who were supposed to do the whole flight, started to give little bits of the flight to other airlines, to Air France and British Airways. So I ended up having to fly to Paris uh, which I wasn't supposed to, before I flew to Seoul. And it was chaos in Paris. I don't know anyone who's flown through Charles de Gaulle lately. It is mayhem. And I barely made the flight. I had to sort of really force the issue to, to sort of push through areas that I'm sure I wasn't allowed to go through. In fact, I got to the gate at Charles de Gaulle without a boarding pass. I'm pretty sure I wasn't supposed to be there. But that was the only way I could get there on time. And I said to them, you know, what, the bag's okay, isn't it? The bag's checked through, which they said in Heathrow, checked all the way through. And they just looked at me and I could see, I could just see for the expression, this bag will not arrive. And sure enough, got to Guam and the bag was was long gone. The bag had never made it from, away from Paris. <laughs> so it took about five days of chasing that bag, but it did eventually make it. The, the reason the bag mattered was because it was full of foot, futsal shoes. And these were the first futsal shoes anyone in the region had had, except for the app team, in fact, who did have shoes. But all the other teams had no shoes. They were playing barefoot or in terrible shoes really shoes you wouldn't kick a ball in and so they'd all had their hopes up they were going to get these shoes and I just knew the bag would get lost it just had to happen it did turn up midway through the week though didn't it it did it turned up before the semi-finals so we were able to give the players shoes before the semi-finals and the difference it made was as you'd expect pretty huge but the lovely thing is going forward obviously they will keep those shoes the quite the quite touching thing was players were saying after the games you know gave out all the shoes after the games they're like trying to give them back and I say no these are these are your shoes now and they couldn't quite get their head around that because they're just there's just not been that kind of encouragement for this sport in that area so hopefully this will going forward this will make them feel like you know we are futsal players we have futsal shoes it really makes people feel part of something I think you mentioned there the semi-finals just to explain a little bit about this tournament format from what I could garner from a distance following online you had a group stage where the four states all played each other and then the first played the fourth and the second played the third in the semi-finals and then went on, of course, to, to play a final. What were the big storylines on the futsal court? The biggest thing was Koshrai. So Koshrai, we had this worry. That's where Kenny's from. So Kenny had sprung to life trying to help with this guy, Christiao, the Solomon Island in Koshrai. They were talking over thousands of miles on Facebook trying to say, well, how do we build a team on an island that doesn't have a, a player? It doesn't even have a football. We had to, took about three months to get a futsal ball out there because it's so hard to get to. It's so remote. So they were trying to build a team. and struggled and struggled and struggled because it's just not in the nature of people out there yet they don't see it as a sport they play and the idea of going to a competition to compete was quite scary to people with no preparation time so actually what happened in the end was they found there were some kosh ryan players in pompeii which saved us the airfares and also had the yeah the double benefit of like the players already present they've probably been playing in pompeii with the pompeii players but they didn't have enough so what pompeii's team very kindly agreed to do was to give them three of their youngest, freshest talents, like 12-year-old, 14-year-old, 16-year-old players as a kind of like, look, this will round off your team. What we didn't realise was that these players would be phenomenally talented. <laughs> they were absolutely brilliant players. They had no fear. They've been playing with much older players for years. 
and they really fell into this thing of being the Koshrai team. They even the players that had no Koshrai blood really got into it and got got really proud about that they were representing Koshrai because I think it was just a new thing for them to be to be playing and to be representing someone. And the great thing is there are loads of Koshrai's in Pompeii, so people would turn up and chant and sing Koshrai songs, and these players wearing the Koshrai shirts, I think genuinely started to feel quite Koshrai. Half the team were Koshrai and half the team weren't. But the half that weren't really felt that team identity. And so they, when they beat Yap, the one of the favourites in the first game, it was an absolute shockwave. Partly it was that Yap hadn't really settled yet. They weren't they weren't quite comfortable. And Yap had a small squad. They could only afford to bring the bare bones of a squad because the, they had the most expensive flight prices. But yeah, Koshirai were the real story that they won that first game. But they lost their second game. So everybody won a game by the end of round two. Everyone had won one game, which left it incredibly evenly poised. And for me, it was a dream because I'd had this vision of Koshrai possibly losing every game by a heavy score and it being quite negative. Instead, you had a team that was that was suddenly one of the favourites. Uh, and so it proved, you know, they got all the way to the final, this Koshrai team, and lost to Yap. But it was phenomenal, really, to see it happen. What about off the court? Because when we were talking through some of the things that we might discuss in this episode, you mentioned the atmosphere and the sort of fan culture as something that was a little bit unexpected for you. I think especially given you mentioned the flight prices and how expensive it was to get all the players out there on these islands that are thousands of kilometers apart, you wouldn't necessarily expect too many fans. But were you perhaps a little bit surprised by that? Yeah, it grew and grew. So the first few games were were relatively well attended, but not massively. And then it grew as people started to say, look, have you seen this thing's going on at, at, the, at the gym up at Pix, which is the school where the, the gym is? And what was really nice, so if you host a competition in Pompeii, the way the, the Federated States of Micronesia are, Pompeii is a bit like the London in a way. People gravitate there. So there's no one... There, there will be lots of Yapese people in Pompeii. There'll be lots of Chukis. There'll be lots of Koshrai. So there's every state had a decent amount of people in Pompeii. So that the nice thing about that meant that the atmosphere was was really f- like fevered for all the games, not just the host nation games. So the host state Pompeii actually didn't do so well. They they would have expected better. They lost to Yap in the semifinals and ended up coming third. But actually, it didn't matter for the atmosphere because so many people there had you know, Koshrayan or especially Koshrayan and Yapis, but also Chukis, they had relatives. And so people would come and chant and cheer the local chants. And it was amazing. You'd you'd hear the Chukis songs and you'd know that, oh, that's a Chukis song. And then the next the next game, you'd hear Yapis song and dancing and kettle drums. And you'd be like, the atmosphere was unlike anything we'd ever seen in Micronesia. And I think partly it was because the sport really suits the the mentality because they're used to basketball basketball is very big it's common to go watch basketball games futsal is a lot more similar there's a lot of action it's fast there's timeouts players coming on and off there's a lot of aspects of basketball but it's also in a in a kind of small enclosed indoor space where you know the rain's not going to stop it and so it really worked people would come for the first game gradually more and more people by the time of the second game we had two a day by the time of the second game it would be really packed and noisy and just lovely. Like aside from the also the chance, there was also a healthy dose of the British style piss taking, and hmm. just pe- like you know the, the the little things that we take for granted, like people sort of a few ironic cheers started when people skied the ball, and so it was brilliant. It was really like people were seeing this sport and saying, "Yeah, actually, I like this. This this will work." And you could feel it around the island. More and more people would say, "Oh, we saw that. We're going to come tonight." We could, we told these people to come. It was really nice to see it grow. You obviously put a lot into this in terms of time, uh, effort, money as well to get over there, helping to organize it. And we're going to talk a little bit in part two about the newly formed FA. 
but just from a footballing perspective, was it what you expected from the tournament? Did it exceed your expectations? What memories from a, a footballing perspective will you take away from, from that tournament? For me personally, like it, it exceeded everything because because of the way it was embraced by the general public, but also the quality of some of the players was was really impressive. So I understood there'd be good players on Pompey. The the coach there, Vasanta, has been coaching these players for years. I didn't anticipate quite how good some of these players would be. And I also didn't quite anticipate how much it would mean to some of the players. So the Yap team, when they won it, it was an incredibly emotional thing. Like it's a massive deal for them. Their last football outing had been losing in 2018 to Pompey and they've been haunted by it ever since with no possibility of redemption. And suddenly they have this opportunity and they seize it. You know, there were there were people in tears and there were players genuinely, it was the biggest moment for them to lift this trophy. So I hadn't quite thought it'd be such a big deal hadn't quite anticipated how talented. And also to see these Koshrai, these young, well, you know, the wannabe Koshrai players, the, the, the 12, 14-year-olds, who really are so talented that with a bit of encouragement, you think there's no limit to where they could go. Quite a few of these players, it turned out, were the nephews or sons of people that I'd coached back in 2010. And that was a that was a funny experience. You'd look, you'd recognise a player vaguely and think, well, yeah, there's no way I can recognise him. He's 12, hasn't been in Pompey for 12 years. And it turns out he would be the nephew of a player that you coached for, you know, a year. <laughs> that was a really lovely thing to see as well, that kind of continuity. What about the trophy? You mentioned it briefly there. I saw on this brilliant Twitter thread that you wrote, which our listeners can find if they follow you on Twitter at Paul underscore C underscore Watson. It was all about your experiences at the tournament. But one of the things you mentioned was that there was a bit of an issue with the wood carving that was given to the winning team as a trophy and that that was flown in from Guam. And did it happen to be on the same plane as your bags? <laughs> no. So actually, it's a bit, it was a bit more complicated. So what happened was we we knew we needed trophies. There are no trophies in Pompeii, really. It's, a, it's not something you can get there. So we got trophies made in Guam and we were assisted in that by the captain of the Guam national football team, Jason Cunliffe, who's like a massive helper and supporter of football in Micronesia, always been really helpful. So he got these trophies made and we thought, well, look, we're flying. We got the, we got it all sorted. But then we had this problem that we couldn't get them on the flight from Guam to Pompeii. There was just no way to get them in. And none of the delivery services seemed to be able to do it at all. And so we had these trophies, but they were going to be in Guam, like a three hour flight away. We were looking at the possibility of having nothing to present the players at the end, which would just be really sad. So what we did was we got a wood carving commission. There's an area of uh, in Pompeii called Kapinga where people do amazing wooden handicrafts. So we went there and said, like really short notice, about three or four days before the tournament was going to finish. We said, look, could we get all the trophies made here? And the guy looked at us as if we were crazy and said, look, I can do one. But you're talking about like a handcrafted wooden trophy. This is not going to be done in, it's not going to be able to make three or four of these for like, you know, best player awards. So we did, we got one commissioned and made and we knew we had it as a backup. We were going to use it as the main trophy if that was all we had. But in the end, it became the MVP trophy, the best player award, which was really nice because the other trophies did make it to, to Pompeii, but only because one of the players in the tournament had a sister-in-law who was coming from Guam to Pompeii so we got the trophies given to her by Jason. He arranged for them to be given to her in Guam, who they'd never met. So just basically trafficked these trophies by her. Uh, and she had to pay an enormous excess baggage fee, which we then obviously paid for her. And they did arrive, but they arrived on the day of the game in someone's luggage, <laughs> which is the most, <laughs> the most, that sums up the tournament to a T. Like everything was last minute. Everything was tough. There were always problems, but... In the end, what was lovely is the trophy we did get for the main trophy was a kind of glass football 
And it's a really nice trophy, but it's also totally unlike any kind of trophy they ever would have in Micronesia. So it really felt special, which was nice. Absolutely beautiful. Well, I've really enjoyed listening to all of that in part one about the Origins journey and the tournament itself. We'll be back after a quick bit of music to talk about the establishment of a football association, what the future holds in store for the sport in Micronesia, and where lovers of Paul's book up Pompeii might get their next fix. Welcome back to part two of this Sweeper podcast episode about Micronesia's first ever futsal tournament. We do have some killer European football stories waiting for you in a longer part three, but we'll be finishing off our dissection of Micronesian futsal and football in this segment, starting with the formation of the nation's first football association, which you helped broker by writing a constitution on the plane. Tell us about that. <laughs> well, actually, it would have been much easier if it were the first FA. So there, there have been Federated States of Micronesia FAs before, but they the most recent incarnation of one was around 2015. I think they set it up in 2013. So just after I'd left Micronesia. So there was a constitution, there was an FA, it became inactive. And what that made difficult is actually it's much harder to tie up an old FA and reform one than it is to set one from scratch. So what I was doing on the plane was getting the old constitution of the FA, revising it, trying to create a new one, but also exploring all the ways that we had to officially disband the old one, which is not not so easy to do, to ensure that this one becomes the new FA. And it was it was it was a fair amount of work. But what was exciting about this new FA is it's representing all the the states, including Koshrai, which I think was pretty much not in the old one, but also that all the representatives who were voted in are keen football people. And that's the big difference. In the past, as with all, or across the world, people who attach their names to FAs are often not actually that interested in football. It's more a status or a power thing. In this new FA, all the people involved are the people that put this tournament together. So they're really keen football people. As a result, quite a lot of them are not administration paperwork people like myself. So the, the setting up of the FA was a real triumph of like getting something done that was fiddly, that nobody wanted to do, but that now hopefully allows the nation a lot more opportunities for growth than, than you could ever have without an FA. Because when we were fundraising for this tournament, the money was mostly coming through shirt sales that I was doing personally, the money would come into my PayPal and I would Western Union the money <laughs> to Micronesia. So if you ever think of a worse way <laughs> that it would look for an FA to be doing its business, Western Union's arriving from a random citizen in the UK is probably not how you want to be doing it. So our hope is that going forward, things will be a lot more official and will open up funding avenues that are much more formal than, than the ones we've had. What shape did this new FA take in terms of the representation of the four states? And were there any sort of key points that you outlined already to help continue the development of the sport? Or was this more just anchoring a constitution? There are little nuances. So you have to have the balance of states. One of the biggest challenges in Micronesia that's different to other small states is this, this four state issue. And the fact they are four pronounced states with different identities, different histories, um, and obviously the, the power struggles have happened in the past between the four. So we made sure that the four representatives are, are present. Brian Southwick is from YAP. The Secretary General, Vasanta Senarathgoda, is from Pompeii. And then the two vice presidents, well, one of the two vice presidents is from Koshrai and one of them is from Chuk. So we made absolutely sure that we represented the four states in the major part of the constitution. Also that the president changes every two years and it will rotate 
through different states. So no state can hold presidency for more than two years in a block. So there's all these little intricacies you have to embed in while you're going about it. But also just doing everything officially is a real slog. And it also feels really silly in, a, in the context of a Pacific Island society. Things are very informal. People are generally an hour late to everything. That's just normal. Games, all our kickoff times, all the games started an hour late. The meeting to form the FA started an hour and three quarters late. So all the formality that you expect from football association documents really struggles when you try and put it into the context of Pacific society. So we we did the best that we could to basically deformalize a lot of stuff, to make a lot of provision for remote working so you can have remote voting you don't have to be in the same room because obviously our some of our representatives are, se are separated by 2000 miles so you you can't just get everyone in a room so there's a lot of that kind of stuff and a lot of that had changed over the last 10 years since the last constitution was made zoom has become you know omnipresent and it's a huge huge factor in being able to link these four states is that we can now talk reliably online so a lot of stuff went our way just by, you know, things are easier than they were 10 years ago. But we also had to be very careful not to put anything in that constitution we couldn't uphold because that's where you get into trouble. You say you're going to do stuff and you can't do it. And suddenly your constitution doesn't look like it binds because you're not doing what it says. One of the main questions I had about this tournament was that it's obviously a futsal tournament. You mentioned in part one why it was futsal and not football. There are obviously good reasons for that. But this FA is a football association. So how does that stand up? Do you think that this tournament really helped bring football forward? It's a very good question. And I've had people question this. So luckily, futsal comes under the jurisdiction of the FA anyway. So it's a football and futsal. It's the same governing body that, that deals with both. In terms of where it leaves us with football, at the moment, the simple fact is we have people kicking a ball who are enjoying playing a form of, of you know, football, futsal, whatever it is, they're kicking a ball, they're playing, they're learning the skills that will sustain both football and futsal. The good thing is we've effectively got a national football squad because it is all the players that are in the futsal team are also going to be the football players. The problem that we have that is almost unique really to the region is it's very hard to see where we would get them together as a football team. And, you know, we could do a training camp in Yap. It would be extremely expensive. The weather probably could be an issue with that too if we've got a limited amount of time. So, yeah, it is going to be an issue that futsal presents itself as a very obvious route for competition, for, for games. Football is harder to manage. That said, there are football tournaments still taking place on the islands. It's just not as easy when you're bringing people from four different islands. So, for example, there will be a football tournament. There's been a football tournament in Pompeii for the Liberation Day games for a long time. Uh, they have it every year for the regions of, of Pompeii. And that tournament can be washed out, but it's OK. They just play the next day. That's not such a possibility if you're bringing people from Yap, Koshra, and you've got a limited number of days. So, yeah, our hope is that this will also allow football to develop and we will find opportunities to carve out camps for football players to, to play for 11 aside. We may even find a friendly for an 11 aside friendly. But, but for the time being, futsal, just it's so much more logical a route to go down. Uh, you mentioned in part one also about the possibility of either AFC or OFC membership in the long run if they were to be accepted into a FIFA confederation. Which of those is likelier and do you think either of them will happen? Currently, I would say it's AFC. And the reason for that, so people often are quite surprised by that answer. I had some bemused replies saying, well, you're OFC, aren't you? It's interesting. There's, there are pragmatic and there are also identity related reasons. So 
when you think about Federated States of Micronesia, the nearest neighbours that we tend to think of are Guam, Northern Mariana Islands are very much on our radar. It's like, well, here are our neighbours. Both of them are in AFC. They went in through East Asian Football Federation. So really, you would look to follow the lead of your nearest neighbour. Now, the slight curveball to that is Kiribati is also pretty close by and they're in OFC. But in terms of which nations could we get to easily to play games, to have you know training camps, if we wanted to send a coach for a training course somewhere, it would be Guam. And then possibly Nolan Marianas as a secondary one. So really, Asia makes a lot more sense. There's also then the fact that the dynamic, and, and this is all a bit off the record, but in the past, OFC have definitely strongly implied that there isn't a lot of room for new members there and that we would be better served going to East Asia. Now, I'm going back you know, into the past set of communications, which is nearly 10 years ago, but informally at the time, Micronesia was advised I would look at East Asia rather than looking at OFC. And I think that's partly because OFC has, you know, relatively limited resources uh, for a confederation. And that is split into a certain number of pieces of the pie. And they don't really want more pieces of that pie. I mean, you could say the same for AFC, but there's a sense, I think, that AFC is a little more buoyant and financially viable. It does mean there'll be mismatches. And I think there'll be fewer mismatches at OFC level. I think the chances of becoming competitive with American Samoa Samoa, Tonga, that that does look more likely in the short term than getting competitive with some of these giants in East Asia. I, I completely agree. But, you know, you have to look at who are you trying to emulate and who we're trying to emulate is Guam. And Guam have got there. You know, Guam may not win games against some of these teams, but, they, you know, they've been competitive. They've thrashed Bhutan. They've even drawn, I think, with India. You know, that they, they can compete. They don't get embarrassed. And I think that's the model that, that we could look towards. A really interesting recap of your entire trip to Micronesia and what the future holds for the sport in the country. You wrote a book, didn't you, after your last experience coaching the Pompeii State team back in 2009. That book was called Up Pompeii. Many of our listeners will be familiar with that. You announced on Twitter as part of that mega thread I mentioned a little while ago uh, that you will be releasing a sort of sequel to Up Pompeii. What form will that take? Yeah, well, it'll be here on um, the sweeper. So for our our patrons, who you know they are the the lifeblood of this, they make this possible. So as as a kind of reward to anyone who's a patron, I will be releasing this via, via our Patreon platform in installments as a sort of sequel to Pompeii, and it'll be a sequel in that it will take everything from my departure, where the book ends in twenty ten, to to the present day. And it will be, again, it will be sort of narrative nonfiction. So it'll be similar in style to Up Pompeii. But just, just bringing everyone up to date with a huge amount of stuff that has happened in the region that I've not written about for various reasons. Going all the way through the, you know, the world record defeats of 2015 at the South Pacific Games, the former FA and the problems that, that eventually shut it down and why they couldn't get into AFC, all the way through to Kenny's message and this new tournament. But delving into also some of the players' stories, going deeper into, you know, who are the players? Why did they care? You know, why was it such a big deal for Yap to win on a personal level? What what shaped that victory? Basically, a, a deeper dive into this this tournament. And it'll be the only place that you'll get that will be through being a member of our Patreon. That's going to be serialised, isn't it, over a, a certain period of time and in written form. How many instalments do you think that's going to come in? <laughs> it could be a few. I'm thinking monthly instalments. They'll be relatively short because it'll be online and people don't generally like to read thousands and thousands of words on a screen so I think it'll be something like roughly speaking six installments maybe of 
between one and 2,000 words. Hopefully with some media embedded, I'm just still trying to work out exactly what I can embed where, but it'd be nice to, to also have the advantage over a written format, over, over a book of being able to put imagery in there so you can get some faces for names and possibly even some little video clips, which I think people might quite like to see. That's one of several new perks that will be exclusively available on Patreon. In fact, we're doubling the number of benefits while keeping the price the same. So we'd love to take a few moments to tell you about those now. In addition to our fortnightly bonus episodes in which we discuss either our travels around the football world or the stories that don't make the final shortlist for the pod, we also currently have a Discord server for our patrons. We have channels to talk about everything from kits to ground hopping to book recommendations and patrons can currently vote on the lead story for each episode. That's what we've had up until now, but we now have three new perks. So we have this serialized Up on Pace sequel, which Paul will be releasing in segments over the coming months. We'll also be conducting a draw on a monthly basis to give a mystery football shirt box supplied by our brilliant sponsor, Surprise Shirts. That will be going on up until the end of 2023 at least. So once a month, you have the chance to win a brilliant surprise shirt wherever you are in the world. And lastly, we'll be giving patrons the opportunity to pitch their stories for our regular episodes. So what will happen there is Paul and I will choose the best one and the winner can either let us tell his or her story or they can join us on the pod for the final five minutes to tell us themselves. So that's six really cool perks for only £5 a month. If you like the sound of that and you're enjoying the pod and you've perhaps been thinking about signing up for a while and you want to play a part in helping it grow, please do sign up at patreon.com forward slash sweeperpod. It makes a really big difference. Time for a quick break now then, and we'll be back to round up the best European football stories from the past fortnight. Welcome back to the third and final part of The Sweeper, where we bid a fond farewell to Micronesia and start to talk about some of the major stories closer to home. And the logical place to start this segment must be with the biggest upset of the UEFA club competition qualifiers so far, K.I. Klaxvik's stunning Champions League victory over Ferenc Baros. It was, somewhat unsurprisingly, voted as the main story for this episode by 44% of our patrons. What did you make of this incredible upset pool it was stunning because when the f- the first leg obviously the nil nil draw in in Klaxvig and that was in itself a pretty amazing result for them I mean we've been following Klaxvig for some time and we're, we're kind of becoming fans of theirs they're on track for this unbeaten or on track for the perfect season in fact in, in Fair Island so they're not to be underestimated but yeah after the nil nil draw at home there really was a feeling that you know that was probably as far as they could go with it against Ferry Faros, you know, big team. So when I checked the score for the first time, saw they were a goal up, I just had this feeling, God, could they do it? And um, I mean, they really ran right. I think it's 3-0 just before half time. And um, from there on, you just thought, well, surely they can't get pegged back. An amazing achievement. Absolutely incredible, really. If there are some listeners out there thinking, well, why is this such a big upset? I think a few numbers we could throw at you might illustrate that. You've got Klaxvik, a town of 5,000 people, Budapest, a city of 1.75 million people. They are 169th and 62nd in the UEFA club ranking list, respectively, Klaxvik being 169th. And they have a squad market value, Klaxvik, of 2.68 million, Ferenc Baros, 52.6. So I think that really does sort of put into perspective this David versus... Goliath sort of situation here. 
But one of the best stories from this victory for me was that of the KIA goalkeeper, Jonathan Johansson, who actually quit football a year ago. Then he decided that he missed it. So he made his comeback in April this year. He was playing as a centre-back in the Norwegian fifth tier. Within two months, he signed as an emergency player for KI. And now he's kept a clean sheet against Ferenc Varos in the Champions League. And I think it's these sort of stories when people ask you, like, why are you so interested in the qualifying rounds and these early rounds with these smaller clubs that you don't hear of so often? It's for exactly this reason, because you will not ever get this at the top level of European football. And the fact that you still do get it somewhere is what keeps the magic in the Champions League for me. I totally agree. I mean, these are these are ridiculously divorced from the, the big money sort of later stages of the competition. And I think it's worth saying that the minnows are, are doing really well. And I think that's really heartening and interesting. Even the places which didn't record wins. So San Marino, it was a pretty much a clean sweep. They, they all went out. But on the other hand, none of those teams were absolutely outclassed as they have been possibly in the past, you know. And I think it's really nice to see teams from these minnow nations compete. It's quite heartening, really, that there that there is a possibility of of this kind of thing happening still when the game has got so polarised between the haves and have-nots. You texted me the other night. I'm on holiday, as I mentioned, and so I asked you to kindly keep an eye on the scores in case anything uh, big happened that I needed to tweet about. And the message you sent me was... A great night for Andorran football last Thursday in the Conference League. Um, what happened there? This is really interesting for me. Is that Andorran football seems to be coming on in leaps and bounds, whether that's national or club. But this was this was a really interesting night because two Andorran sides won European ties. I think that's the first night that's ever happened. I mean, I imagine it is that you had Santa Coloma and Inter Descaldes both going through. You could debate how much either were outsiders, but I would say Inter Descaldes were, were were definitely not expected to to get past Vikinger. That was an unexpected win. The other tie was a much more difficult one to call because I, I think if I'd been asked, you look at Andorra and Iceland, you say, yeah, okay, the Icelandic team Vikinger, you'd expect them to have won. The other tie where Santa Coloma beat. Now I have to be very careful with my pronunciation. <laughs> so is it Pen Penabont? Penabont, not Pennybont. Penabont, right? For the context, we had someone picking us up on our pronunciation <laughs> of this on Twitter. So that's why I'm a little bit reluctant to say it out loud. Quite right, too, because I have no excuse. My nan was Welsh. So I can even say, probably quite badly, but I can even say the long name place. <laughs> so I should be able to pronounce <laughs> Penibont. But I, th- I think I was saying Penibont for some reason. I think it's Penibont. But basically, that tie was a much harder one to call in terms of coming into it. You had the Andorran side. You'd generally expect the Andorran side to be underdogs. But the story of uh, Penevant is kind of amazing in itself. You know, this this club from Bridgend, you know, coming into Europe for the first time, a very sort of small club at the heart of the community. So I wouldn't have said that was necessarily like a shock shock. But still, the the trend that Andorra could get these these two teams through is is pretty remarkable, I still think. While we're on the topic of the qualifying rounds, another story that caught my eye, and I think yours too, was the Conference League first qualifying round tie between Glentoran of Northern Ireland and Jazeera of Malta, which set a European record. Did you see this happen at the time? No, I only saw after it happened, because I think I must have been long in bed by that point because <laughs> of my kids. But um, I saw the scoreline. I thought, well, that sounds ridiculous. But wasn't it even more ridiculous because of the nature of the penalty shootout? It wasn't just a 14-13. There was also some crazy things that happened within it. Yeah. So, well, first of all, in normal time still or in, or in extra time, Glenn Torren scored a goal in the 13th minute of second half stoppage time 
to take it to penalties in the first place. And then it seemed like both teams had the spot-taking skills of a 1990s German. So none of them were missing. It got to that point in the penalty shootout where every single person has stepped up to take one. So you go through the cycle again. And with the score at 12-11 to Jazeera United, a player called Jan Donnelly stepped up and he had to score to keep Glenn Torren in the game. The Jazeera United goalkeeper dived really well down to his left kept the shot out and he ran off celebrating thinking that was you know that was sudden death by that point his team had won the tie so he runs off and then you've got the ball slowly looping back and spinning in the air until it goes over the line and that had taken such a long time that the other goalkeeper had been coming had been walking across the goal mouth and was like pointing to it to show the referee look look it's gone over the line look and so the referee's like yep it has, <laughs> you know, we've got to keep going. And so the penalty shootout continued. And uh, I mean, it didn't ultimately matter because Jazeera won 14-13. But can you imagine if that had cost him? So he there was no, like he could have just land, uh, picked the ball up and, you know, taken it away from the line, right? So he must have just been so sure that the ball was going to go out of play. It's just such a weird thought that you make the save and then you don't, you don't stop and just get the ball. <laughs> it's such a weird... Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I guess he was overcome by adrenaline, oh. but it did. The shootout did set the record for the longest shootout to have ever taken place in a UEFA club competition. It broke a record in any UEFA competition that was previously held by a semi-final between Netherlands and England in the 2007 UEFA Under-21 Championship where the score was a little bit less than 14-13, but I think a total of 32 spot kicks were taken in that shootout. There were a lot more misses. But yeah, quite an incredible occurrence in the in the Conference League. Mentality-wise for Jazeera, what a team mentality-wise. To concede at 90 plus 13 is crushing enough for most teams. But to then pick yourselves up and then think you've won the shootout and not have won the shootout and then still win the shootout. That is, <laughs> that is mentality-wise, that is a strong team. Quite something. Was there anything else from the European qualifying rounds that caught your eye? I haven't got a lot more to offer, to be honest. Andorra, yeah, took up a lot of my night. I saw that our friends Sheriff are going to be competing again, aren't they? So uh, <laughs> always we always do a load of stuff about Sheriff each year. I was kind of relieved if they would go out, but they, they sort of pull themselves through. Yeah, I think most of my... Um, so I've been on holiday since Thursday, so I didn't perhaps keep the same close eye that I would usually on the Conference League, but... It's just Klaxvik for me. That was incredible. Them, them coming home and being welcomed to flares by the side of the road. That was the real magic of the uh, the qualifying rounds for me. And they will be uh, in action against BK Hacken, I think, today uh, as this podcast goes out. So that's Wednesday, the 26th of July. The first leg of that tie will be happening. So we'll, of course, be keeping a really close eye on that. And if they do manage to win that tie, then they are guaranteed European group stage football, which no club from the Faroe Islands has ever done before because if they get through to the Champions League third qualifying round and then they lose they would go into the Europa League playoffs and if they lose that then they would be in the Conference League group stages so they would be guaranteed European football if they can win one more tie so fingers crossed for them. What a club still on track for the the perfect season in the league and also um, managing to, to sort of shock everyone in Europe I've got to say it's only a matter of time before one of us has to head out to Klaxvik, surely. 
Yeah, they are winning our hearts slowly. Not even slowly. They're just winning our hearts. <laughs> We've got one more story to bring you today, uh, and that concerns the ongoing Russia-Ukraine conflict and the incorporation of two Crimean football clubs into the Russian football pyramid. So what's happened here is that ever since the initial Russian seizure of Crimea in 2014, Crimea has been designated as a special zone by UEFA. And what that meant was that Crimean clubs can only compete in a championship with each other and they have no access to European tournaments. And that's been the way since that initial invasion in 2014. That championship is called the Crimean Premier League. And I think at least last season it had eight teams in the division. But now two of those teams have left and that's because they've been incorporated into the Russian fourth tier. Those clubs are Rubin Yalta and FC Sevastopol and they recently played their first matches in Russia's Football National League 2B. Yeah, of course, this is hugely controversial because those are still deemed to be, in many people's eyes, Ukrainian clubs. And it's also controversial because it's sort of a loophole that they can get through because UEFA's special zone only applies to professional football clubs. And the Russian fourth tier is an amateur division. So it seems like, based on that, that they will be able to incorporate those clubs. But the question that obviously comes to my mind then is what happens if one of those clubs, whether it's Rubin Yalta or FC Sevastopol, if they get promoted then what happens because then they are breaking uefa's rules oh but also then so the these are professional clubs that have now had to become amateur in order to do this so how are they doing that if you're a professional club and then you have to go into an amateur system are the players just happy to suddenly be amateurs or are they doing something to get around that well, I'm not sure to what degree they were professional, to be honest, because they've been playing in this Crimean championship. And that's obviously been separate from the Ukrainian pyramid where those clubs would have previously played. So I'm not sure if they've really dropped off from being professional to amateur, but it does remain to be seen what's going to happen. There have been angry letters, understandably, sent by the Ukrainian Football Association to the governing bodies. They want UEFA to consider ejecting Russia. They've referred to it as a gross violation of FIFA and UEFA statutes. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens here and, you know, what happens inevitably if in two or three years one of those clubs gets promoted. I think it certainly remains to be seen. Um, if you are interested in this topic, we made an episode a good couple of years ago now before Paul joined the sweeper team. Uh, that was all about Crimean football and we spoke to Andrew Todos, the founder of the Zoria Dlondonsk Twitter account all about what was going on in Crimea. The only caveat is, of course, that that episode is a little bit out of date now. But if you want to go back and find out a little bit about what happened to those Crimean clubs initially following Russia's 2014 invasion, then you can find that on our podcast feed. Any other business for today, Paul? Anything else you want to slot in there? Oh, no, I can't think of anything now. <laughs> it's been a busy <laughs> one, hasn't it? It's been a very busy one, I feel. What is coming up by the time we're next on, it'll I think it might be the start of the Greenlandic Football Championships, which is always one of the highlights of my year. Ah, yes. Um, but no, I no other business for the time being. I'm excited to see how KI Klaxvig get on today 
if you're listening to this. Absolutely. We'll be tweeting about that, I'm sure, and especially if they win. But BK Hacken, I think, are quite a likeable club as well. They're Swedish first-time champions. So whoever wins that will be able to take some positives from it. I think we'll draw a line under this mammoth episode of The Sweeper. We hope you enjoyed our Micronesian chat and the rest of our roundup too. Thanks for listening in, and we'll catch you for another dose of niche football goodness soon.